Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida at aaronv.com. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Mysterious Tales of Loss and Woe and Other Jovial Stories, a new book by Truist Dunkworth. In a world of wonder, this is a book that encourages teens and preteens to think and be surprised. Look for it on amazon.com. You're listening to episode 143 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Paul Benowitz, Project Beta, and UFOs. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So, Jimmy, what do we need to know about today's episode? It deals with a very famous UFO story that took place in the 1980s and that had a major impact on the field of ufology. The man at the center of the case was named Paul Benowitz, and there's so much to say about his story that this will be part one of a two-parter. In this episode, we'll tell you the story as it unfolded around Paul up to a crucial turning point. Then next episode, we'll tell you how the story ended and go into analysis mode and try to figure out how accurate the report are and what actually happened. All right, let's begin then with who was Paul Benowitz? He was born in 1927 and he passed in 2003 at the age of 75. In World War II, he joined the Coast Guard at age 17. Later, he married a woman named Cindy and together they had two sons named Brad and Matthew. Paul earned a master's degree in physics, and in 1969, at age 42, he started a small company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, named Thunder Scientific, which I must say is an awesome name. (laughs) Yes. Thunder Scientific produces temperature and humidity instruments for NASA and the U.S. Air Force. Paul was working on a Ph.D., but his business consumed all of his time, so he became a businessman. He also was a pilot and a UFO investigator. In fact, he did work for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO, which was one of the most respected UFO organizations of the time. Haven't we heard of APRO in previous episodes? Yeah, we've mentioned researchers from APRO in our episodes on the Bet Sphere and Betty and Barney Hill and the Pascagoula UFO abduction of Calvin Parker and Charlie Hickson. APRO was active from 1952 to 1988, and it had a reputation for doing high-quality work. J. Allen Hynek referred to APRO and NICAP as the two best civilian UFO groups of the time. One of the reasons for APRO's high reputation is that it stressed doing scientific field investigations of UFO reports, and it had a lot of Ph.D. consultants. Although Paul didn't have a Ph.D., he didn't finish it, he did have a master's in physics, and he occasionally did work for APRO. In time, he became the central figure of one of the most dramatic and controversial UFO stories of the 1980s. How did that begin? It started in 1979, but to understand how it began, we need to understand 
where it began, the place that Paul was living and working. Albuquerque, New Mexico is very close in proximity to Kirtland Air Force Base, and the Thunder Scientific Lab that he ran was located on the edge of the base, and the backyard of his house was just across the road from the base. Now, this wasn't a bad thing, obviously, since the Air Force was one of his principal clients, and so that made it easy to conduct business. Now, there's something you need to know about Kirtland Air Force Base. It's enormous. Do not imagine a small base that's some buildings tightly packed together. This is one of the largest Air Force facilities, and it covers 80 square miles. It even includes part of a mountain range, namely the foothills of the Manzano Mountains. And in 1979, these included the Manzano Nuclear Weapons Storage Area, which was one of two major nuclear weapons storage facilities in the United States. For a time in the 1950s, Monsanto Mountain itself had held a presidential emergency shelter and command post in case nuclear war broke out and President Eisenhower needed to relocate there. But this shelter was closed after the invention of the H-bomb because it wasn't deep enough in the mountain to survive a thermonuclear detonation. In any event, here's how the Albuquerque Historical Society describes Kirtland AFB. Kirtland Air Force Base is surprising for its size and complexity. At 80 square miles and more than 25,000 employees, Kirtland is one of the largest installations of the U.S. Air Force. It's also one of the most complex, with three scientific laboratories, two flying organizations, a weapons depot, two headquarters, Air Force Safety and Systems Testing, an astronomical observatory, and the Department of Energy's biggest field office. The base's economic impact on Albuquerque totals $4 billion per year. Munition storage has a long history at Kirtland. It started in 1945 with nuclear weapons arriving at Sandia Base, from Los Alamos, for practice in loading unmodified B-29 bombers. In 1946, the Army began building Site Abel in the Manzano foothills and activated the operation in 1950. It became Manzano Base in 1952. The work at Manzano was so secret that servicemen who worked there couldn't even tell their wives what they did. Manzano consisted of 122 igloos or magazines, 81 earth-covered bunkers, and 41 tunnels in mountainsides, and four plants scattered through 2,880 acres in the Manzano foothills. In 1952, the Air Force took over Manzano Base and operated the storage depot until it completed a new underground storage complex in 1990. Kirtland has two major flying outfits. The 58th Special Operations Wing trains 2,000 students a year from all over the world in special operations and combat rescue, helps civilian authorities with local rescues, and supplies people in airlifts during crises. The New Mexico Air National Guard 150th Fighter Wing flies and maintains F-16 Fighting Falcon jet fighters. Kirtland's best-known tenant is Sandia National Laboratories, a Department of Energy facility with some 8,000 employees. But the base is home to two other labs as well, two directorates of Air Force Research Laboratory. One includes Starfire Optical Range, an astronomical observatory in the Manzano foothills. So, big, huge base with massive nuclear stockpile and lots of highly secret stuff being developed back in 1979. Needless to say, there's lots of security. In his book, Project Beta, Greg Bishop reports, Viewed from a trail through the sage and scrub brush near the Benowitz home, 
The mountains start to lose their innocent look. The 50,000-volt electric double fence that rings the entire base of the hills can be seen sneaking over a distant rise. Over the years, base security has found a few people tangled in the fence or crumpled next to it, electrocuted to death. In some areas, visible only when the sun is at just the right place in the sky, the mountain is covered with what looks from a distance like pieces of broken plate glass mirrors littering the hillside. In all probability, these are devices to foil satellite and aerial photography, and perhaps even ground-penetrating radar. Thus, this is a denied area, and don't mess with the 50,000-volt fence unless you want to be electrocuted. I'm guessing that the base had something to do with the start of Paul's story, so what was that? Paul had a second-story deck on his house, and in 1979, he and his wife Cindy noticed that there were these colored lights floating and zooming around the mountains inside the base. They were less than a mile from his house, and so he started photographing and filming them. Eventually, he got something like 6,000 feet of film. Here's Greg Bishop in the documentary Mirage Men giving a description of what Paul saw. That's the part of the base that Paul Benowitz could see. You can see the Manzano Mountain here, where all the nuclear weapons were stored. Kirtland Air Force Base is the perimeter fence. Paul Benowitz's house is right over here, and his excellent view was afforded from this exclusive area of Albuquerque. You basically have a front row seat. August, September of 1979. Paul was standing up on his deck and looking out over the roofs towards the base, and these lights he saw would probably be about half a mile away. There was always two of them. They'd lift up from the ground rather quickly and then very quickly go around, shoot that way around the side of the mountain, and then drop down behind it. And they did the same thing every time. For anybody, that would pique your interest. In his book, Bishop indicates that apparently there was some variation in what the lights did. He wrote, At times, the lights streaked away as quickly as a magician's sleight of hand, only to reappear seconds later, apparently miles from where they had just been. To Benowitz, this was irrefutable proof that something unearthly was playing cat and mouse with the human race, daring us to react. Because of the ways the lights would move, he concluded that they were displaying qualities that were beyond human technology, and he became concerned because they were so active around our nuclear stockpile. That's something that has been widely reported, in fact, that UFOs appear to have an interest in nuclear weapons facilities, and we'll be talking about it in the future. For now, Paul simply kept gathering evidence so that he could present it to the proper authorities. Greg Bishop explains... In time, the 52-year-old electronics expert would present this mass of data to the authorities, which he thought would waste no time in confronting the threat. They would have no choice. The lights were flying around the Manzano Weapons Storage Complex, then the largest underground repository of nuclear weapons components in the Western world. But that meeting was still in the future, and other things happened first. On May 6, 1980, Paul got a phone call from a New Mexico police officer named Gabe Valdez. Who was Gabe Valdez? He was a highway patrol officer in the northwest corner of the state, an area including Dulce, New Mexico, and he had a really interesting career. He was considered highly professional and effective and had won the Officer of the Year Award. He also had been assigned to work on some very strange cases. In 1975, he was assigned to investigate reports of cattle mutilation and strange flying lights in his part of the state. 
cattle mutilation is a phenomenon that we'll discuss in future episodes. We also talked about it briefly in episode 36 on Skinwalker Ranch, where some mutilation cases took place. Basically, cattle mutilation is when a livestock animal, not always a cow, turns up dead and mutilated in a very strange way. Often the tongue, eyes, and reproductive tract organs have been removed, seemingly with surgical precision, and the animal has been drained of blood. This is often reported in conjunction with strange lights and UFOs. Needless to say, ranchers are not happy when this occurs to their livestock. And in New Mexico in the 1970s, there had been a wave of it that had the ranchers very upset, and they had been reporting the incidents to law enforcement. Gabe Valdez was one of the officers assigned to investigate, and he had some strange experiences. Greg Bishop explains, The area patrolled by Valdez had far more than its share of UFO sightings as well, lending another bizarre twist to this already weird scenario. Valdez and three other law enforcement officers had actually cornered one of the furtive lights in a foggy pasture late one night. In an area about the size of a football field, the cops surrounded and then approached a glowing, hovering orange light. As they closed the distance between them, the light abruptly winked out. The moonless night concealed the object as it floated just over their heads with, as Valdez says, a sound like a small lawnmower motor. On May 6, 1980, Officer Valdez was assigned to the case of a woman named Myrna Hansen, who claimed to have had a frightening experience the night before involving bright lights, herds of cattle, and strange people. Valdez had met Paul Benowitz at a conference in Albuquerque on cattle mutilation, and he knew about his UFO investigations. So he contacted him, and the two arranged for Mrs. Hansen to visit his home. Paul tried to do what he could to investigate Mrs. Hansen's story, but she was very fearful and had difficulty answering some questions, so he thought it would be best if a mental health professional was brought in. He therefore contacted Dr. Leo Sprinkle, who was a psychologist, professor, and UFO researcher for APRO. Paul paid for Dr. Sprinkle to fly to Albuquerque, and when he arrived, he placed Mrs. Hansen under hypnosis. She reported that on the night of her encounter, she was driving back to New Mexico from Oklahoma with her eight-year-old son when they encountered some very bright lights. They got out of the car to see what the lights were, and they saw that the lights were doing something to a nearby herd of cattle, which was panicking. She saw one struggling cow being levitated up into one of the lights. She also reported being abducted and given a physical examination. Were reports of alien abductions common at this time in 1980? No, this was before alien abduction reports were anywhere near as common as they are now. There had been the Betty and Barney Hill abduction in 1961, which we talked about in episodes 61 and 62. There also had been the Charles Hickson Calvin Parker abduction in Pascagoula in 1973, which we talked about in episodes 127 and 128. And there had been the Travis Walton abduction in 1975, which we'll talk about in the future. But there weren't the hundreds of abduction reports that started coming out in the 1980s and 1990s. So this was still a relatively unknown, uncommon phenomenon. What else did Dr. Sprinkle learn from Mrs. Hansen? As the hypnosis sessions progressed, Greg Bishop states that Mrs. Hansen also reported... She had been taken to an underground base, had seen body parts floating in vats, received what she thought was an explanation from her captors as to what they were doing with her, 
and what their presence on earth meant, and finally felt that some sort of device had been implanted in her body so that the aliens could monitor and control her thoughts. So we have several new elements. The underground base with body parts floating in vats, definite involvement of aliens, and a device that had been implanted in Mrs. Hansen's body, like the alien implants we discussed back in episode 80. Paul set about trying to identify where the underground base might be, and he settled on the area around Dulce, New Mexico, up in Officer Valdez's territory. There were a lot of reports of strange lights and cattle mutilations up there. More dead and mutilated animals were being found almost weekly on Gabe Valdez's patrol, which centered on the small town of Dulce, New Mexico. Dulce is basically a crossroads on a minor state highway with a general store and a gas station and sits on the edge of the Hickoria Apache Indian Reservation, surrounded by thousands of square miles of high-altitude, mountainous scrub and forest. But the really worrying thing was the implant that the aliens had put in Mrs. Hansen. If they were putting such monitoring and control devices in the people they were abducting, what was their overall goal? By degrees, Benowitz began to suspect that this area was the site of an underground alien base and that the extraterrestrials who occupied it were slowly taking over the power structure of the U.S. military, the American government, and ultimately the world. He became convinced that the cave-like facility that Myrna Hansen had described was located here and that the alien beings were using it as a central location from which to conduct reconnaissance, abduct and implant human victims, and perform cattle mutilations. As a result, Paul began to take precautions to protect himself, his family, and Mrs. Hansen. On June 3, 1980, Leo Sprinkle rang the doorbell and after a long pause, Benowitz appeared, toting a pistol on his hip and a rifle in his right hand. He told me that the aliens could come swarming over the walls at any minute. He needed to protect himself, his family, and Hansen, the aliens' prized possession. Because of the tension and increased paranoia, a strained hypnosis session followed. After this session didn't go well, Paul then brought in another UFO expert and hypnotist, Dr. James Harder of UC Berkeley, who had hypnotized Charles Hickson back in 1973. Together, they tried to develop a protocol to block any transmissions that might be going to and from the implant in Mrs. Hansen, and eventually they found one that they thought worked. Transmissions also were something that Paul had been looking for around Kirtland Air Force Base. In addition to the strange lights he was filming above the Manzano Mountains nuclear stockpile on the base, he also began intercepting strange coded radio transmissions, which he believed were connected to the lights. So then what did Paul do? He tried talking to people he knew on the base about what he was finding, but they thought he was likely just seeing helicopters doing maneuvers. That didn't fit the way that the lights behaved because they did things that exceeded the capabilities of helicopters. So he decided to go directly to base security and talk to its commander, Colonel Ernest Edwards. Edwards assigned the case to Special Agent Richard Doty of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, or AFOSI. Agent Doty didn't know anything about the strange lights over the base, but he was concerned about strange transmissions, and he arranged to meet with Paul at his business, Thunder Scientific Labs. He was impressed enough that he arranged a follow-up visit to Paul's home to see the setup that he was using to film the lights and monitor the transmissions. 
On this visit, he was accompanied by physicist Lou Miles, the chief scientist and director of the Kirtland Test and Evaluation Center, who would be aware of the research projects that were going on at the base. When Doty and Miles made their reports to their superiors, the Air Force was concerned enough that they called Paul back and had him come in and make a personal presentation about his findings. Fifteen days later, early on the morning of November 10, 1980, Benowitz drove onto the grounds of Kirtland with his photos, films, and recordings in hand, ready to make his best presentation to the Air Force brass. As Benowitz stepped into the meeting room, he was introduced to Base Commander Brigadier General William Brookshire, four colonels, two AFOSI men, including Base AFOSI head Major Thomas Shea, and a couple of scientists from the Air Force Phillips Weapons Lab. So they brought in some really impressive people for this meeting. The key officers were very interested in and concerned by Paul's pictures and recordings, and Paul suggested that he continue his investigations on behalf of the Air Force. He also asked if they could fund his research, which thus far he'd paid for out of his own pocket. At the end of the report on the meeting with Paul, AFOSI head Major Shea wrote, At the conclusion of the presentation, Dr. Benowitz expressed an interest in obtaining financial assistance from the U.S. Air Force in furthering his investigation regarding these objects. Dr. Lehman advised Dr. Benowitz to request a U.S. Air Force grant for research. Dr. Lehman advised Dr. Benowitz he would assist him in filling out the proper documents. And reportedly, Paul did later receive a grant for $75,000 from one of the agencies on the base to investigate the strange signals he was picking up. So the Air Force and the agencies on the base were taking what Paul had to say seriously? They weren't necessarily convinced by his whole story, but they had been encountering some strange things on their own, although Paul didn't know about them, and he only learned about them later. What kind of things were happening? Greg Bishop explains, The AFOSI had its own problems. Out on a routine patrol near the Manzano complex just after midnight on August 9, 1980, three guards saw a bright light descend to the ground in Coyote Canyon in an area that is not visible to anyone outside the complex. The guards contacted Sandia Lab's security control, which sent one of their patrols out to the site. As one of the guards approached a security-alarmed nuclear storage bunker, he noticed a very bright light hovering motionless near the ground behind a building that was part of the facility. Taking a shotgun, the guard got out of his vehicle and walked toward the light source. He thought he was looking at a landed helicopter and tried to radio back for help and advice, but found that his walkie-talkie had stopped working. He crept closer to confront the intruder and realized that the light was actually a round, disc-shaped object hovering motionless just a few feet off the ground. Just as he was about to shout out a warning, the object shot straight up and was lost to view in seconds. And this was just one of several such incidents that happened in August and September of 1980. The public eventually learned about them through Freedom of Information Act requests, and today the files are known as the Kirtland documents. There also was a major, much more public incident that happened. On August 13th, four days after the first Kirtland UFO sighting, every radar facility in the Albuquerque area had completely shut down at the same time from 4.30 in the afternoon until 10.15 that night. Military, civilian, every single radar tower in the area was down, and the backup systems didn't kick in like they were supposed to. Like the old horror story of the babysitter getting threatening calls from inside the house, 
The Defense Nuclear Agency, who had jurisdiction of security over the area because of the nuclear material stored there, called in to tell Kirtland that they had triangulated the signal and the hostile jamming was actually coming from somewhere inside the base, near the Coyote Canyon area. Base police were sent out to search the remote canyons and arroyos, but found nothing. At 10.16 p.m., all radar suddenly went back to normal. So the radar was out for like almost six hours with no explanation found when they investigated. So between strange lights and saucer-like craft appearing inside the base and a mysterious vanishing something that jammed all military and civilian radars for hours, the Air Force was very well aware that something bizarre was happening, and it wasn't unreasonable for them to ask Paul, with his scientific and technical background, to help investigate it. What about APRO? How were they involved? Paul brought in other experts like Dr. Sprinkle and Dr. Harder, and he was the local point man on the investigation. He kept the leaders of APRO, a Tucson, Arizona couple named Coral and Jim Lawrenson, up to date on his findings and theories. In fact, as Greg Bishop explained, he urged Lawrenson to release his findings on the alien invasion, quote, to all available investigators and other UFO organizations and news services, end quote. He was now certain that the alien abductors were recruiting an army of totally mind-controlled humans who were unwittingly gathering intelligence and waiting for the signal to lay down the red carpet for their masters. However, it appears that the Lawrensons weren't as convinced that an alien invasion was underway. Instead, Jim Lawrenson apparently thought that Paul was investigating a real phenomenon, just not one that was as imminently threatening as he thought. You mentioned that Paul had begun detecting transmissions of some kind. What can you tell us about those? They were coming from the same part of Kirtland AFB where he was seeing the strange lights over at the Manzano Mountains, and Paul thought that they were connected. He started noticing patterns in these transmissions, and so he decided to see if he could decode them. To do that, he decided to try using one of those newfangled devices, a home computer. Greg Bishop explains, Perhaps the deluge of data Paul was getting could be handled better by a computer. In the early 80s, random access memory was measured in kilobytes, and processor speed squeaked by in the double or even single-digit hertz range. Benowitz built many of his own computers and wrote the software as his needs changed. Now, instead of calculating circuit resistance or budget estimates for Thunder Scientific, he needed to figure out something that had never been seen by civilian eyes. He set himself to the task, and in a few months, he had the beginnings of a pattern. The starting point that Paul used for this decryption is actually a common one among cryptanalysts. The principle is to think about the nature of the message you're trying to decrypt and what words or phrases will, like, will be likely to be common in it. Then you try to match what you'd expect to be the most common and most unique words to patterns in the text and see if it starts making sense. This is a very common technique, and it's often quite successful. For example, in July of 1969, the Zodiac Killer, who we'll be discussing in the future, sent a 408-character cipher to three newspapers in the San Francisco area. The cipher was quickly cracked by a husband and wife team in Salinas, California. The way they did it was by thinking about the words a murderer was likely to use in an encrypted text. They decided that he was likely to use words like I, B 
because he was an egomaniac and kill because that is what he was clearly obsessed with. They then started looking for patterns that could fit those words, and suddenly the entire cipher opened up for them. In the same way, Paul decided to look for terms that aliens might be using in connection with their ships. He didn't know what language they were speaking, but he reasoned that he didn't need to know that, since whatever their language was, they'd already translated their words into electronic signals. What he needed to do was match their signals to English words, and as long as the resulting translation made sense, it didn't matter what the sounds they were making in their own language were. Can you give a parallel to how that kind of translation might work with Earth languages? Sure. This is kind of like the way Chinese and Japanese writing works. A single character can correspond to one sound in Chinese and a different sound in Japanese, but it can still represent the same concept. For example, in Mandarin, the word for the concept person is ren, while in Japanese, the word for person is jin. But both of these are written with the same character, which looks kind of like a wishbone or an upside-down V. As a result, if a Japanese speaker is reading a Chinese text, he can spot the word that means person, even if he's never studied Mandarin. And about 70% of the words in written Chinese and Japanese can be recognized by speakers of the other language. The text still seems a bit scrambled and somewhat difficult to understand because of the differences in the two languages and their grammar, but the gist can be figured out. And what concepts did Paul start trying to find patterns for in the transmission? Based on the nature and activity of the craft he was seeing, he started looking for patterns that might represent concepts like UFO, spaceship, alien, and abduction. And soon, Paul started getting translations that made sense. At first, they were very rough, as you would expect, but they improved with time. They were never perfect, of course, just like the differences between spoken Chinese and spoken Japanese will always make written communication between speakers of those languages seem weird, or for that matter, think about the kind of weird results you sometimes get if you use Google Translate or other machine translation apps. I mean, we still haven't gotten a publicly accessible machine translator that delivers accurate, fluid translations that always sound natural. But Paul's method did get to the point that he felt he was understanding enough of what the aliens were saying in the transmissions that he decided to do something I would have strongly counseled against. Before we find out what that is, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Tim L., Michael M., Daniel T., Christopher B., and Benjamin H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. Now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron, thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter. When you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you become a new patron at $10 a month, after three months, our donor will give $30 to StarQuest to support all our shows, including this one, making your gift go even further. So if you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs 
in North and Central Florida at AaronV.com. And by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at RosaryArmy.com. And by Mysterious Tales of Loss and Woe and Other Jovial Stories, a new book by Truist Dunkworth. In a world of wonder, this is a book that encourages teens and preteens to think and be surprised. Look for it on Amazon.com. So, Jimmy, what did Paul do that you would have strongly counseled against? He decided to transmit back to the aliens to talk to them. I think this is a very bad idea. I think that if we ever detect an extraterrestrial signal from outer space, we should not answer it. Instead, we should listen for a very long time and not let the aliens know that we're here or that we can understand them. However, at least part of my justification for that didn't apply to Paul because the aliens already knew about us if they're here on Earth. Still, I would have said that deciding to talk to the aliens was a decision above his pay grade, that it would be a decision that he should leave to the president of the United States, at least. As it turns out, Paul later sent a report to President Ronald Reagan in which he explained why he decided to talk to the aliens. He defends the decision this way. It is important to note that the initial implementation of the computer communications was not instigated for the purpose of talking to one of the aliens for the fun of it, but was deliberately instigated to use as a tool to study, in depth, long-term and without the need for physical confrontation, both the strengths and weaknesses of the alien. So he wanted to speak to them so he could learn more about them, including getting a sense of what we were up against and what vulnerabilities they might have that we could exploit. And the aliens were willing to talk. In fact, Paul later said that the aliens modified his translation program to make it better so they could communicate more clearly. It still was difficult, though, perhaps because of the differences between the alien language and English, or even the difference in the way the aliens conceptualize the world, since, you know, they would have a different evolutionary history and brain structure than we do. For example, here's one of the messages that Paul's computer decoded from the transmissions. Victory. Our bases obtained supplies from the Starship Metal. Time is yanked. Time is yanked. Message. Hit star using rejuvenation methods. Got us in trouble. Six sky. We realize telling you all might help you. That's a bit disjointed, and it could well be that not all of the words are being translated accurately, but some of it's just as intelligible. Their bases obtain supplies from a metal starship. Time is yanked, time is yanked message might mean that time is short and they have a message for us. The fact that time is yanked is repeated twice could be for emphasis. Uh, even in many Earth languages, we repeat things for emphasis. Like if I said to you, time is short, time is short, I have a message. The message then seems to involve something hitting a star or some kind of rejuvenation method, but the bottom line is that they got themselves in trouble and they realized that telling us might help. Paul also learned other things from the messages, like eight of their saucers had crashed on Earth and that their race on their home planet is dying. Eventually, Paul established a video link with the aliens and got images of them. These included several different types of aliens, including some that looked very alien, some that he described as humanoids, so they looked at least somewhat like us, and interestingly, some that looked like beautiful homo sapiens. One of the things that Paul had become convinced of was that the aliens were putting implants in the people they abducted. 
Was there any physical evidence to bear this out, like we talked about in episode 80 on alien implants? Yeah, Paul had Myrna Hansen examined. She was the woman who first came to him reporting the abduction. He called Special Agent Richard Doty, who he was seeing so often that the two had become personal friends, and Doty arranged for her to be examined on Kirtland AFB. Greg Bishop explains... Myrna Hansen was taken here for questioning at least three times after Benowitz had told the Air Force of her plight. At Benowitz's request, Doty arranged for Hansen to be x-rayed at the Lovelace Center to locate the implant that Benowitz was sure was embedded near the base of her skull along the spinal cord. The object did in fact show up on the ultra-sensitive x-ray exposure, but the Air Force doctors were satisfied that it was a natural growth and pursued it no further. During his meetings with base security and other intelligence personnel, Benowitz told of the underground rooms and tunnels that Myrna Hansen visited during her abduction. Doty recalls that while under hypnosis with an Air Force psychologist, she described and drew one of the facilities at Manzano in great detail. She even knew what the elevator looked like, he says. How she was able to do this was a priority concern to the intelligence detachments charged with security of this area. So an anomaly did show up on her x-rays, but the Air Force doctors thought it looked natural rather than artificial. Of course, aliens with advanced tech might be able to make an implant look natural, though perhaps that's a bit easier for us to realize today than it would have been in 1980. I mean, you know, these days we're working with nanotechnology and we've already built organic xenobots or living robots like the ones we mentioned in the mysterious headlines for episode 136, xenobots being robots built out of living cells. So today it's a little easier to see how you could make an implant look like it's something natural. What was really alarming, though, was the fact that Mrs. Hansen was able to accurately sketch and describe the internal layout of the highly classified facilities at Manzano, which she in no way should have been able to do. And that could indicate that the place the aliens took her during her abduction could have been on Kirtland AFB, in which case Kirtland itself had been compromised in keeping with all the strange lights and craft that Paul had been filming moving in and around the Manzano area of the facility. That also fits with persistent reports that have emerged in the UFO literature of what are known as military abductions, which is often abbreviated to either MyLabs or MILABs. It's pronounced both ways. What are MILABs? They're abductions of people that involve human military personnel and that are in some way connected to aliens. In some cases, it's thought that their purpose is to keep track of people who have had contact with aliens and possibly experiment on them. In other cases, it's thought that human military personnel may be in league with the extraterrestrials and are cooperating with their goals. The latter would fit Paul's theory that the aliens he had discovered were co-opting military personnel through mind control. And Mrs. Hansen's ability to describe the interiors of Manzano would be another indication that Kirtland AFB had been compromised. So Agent Doty and his associates were rightly concerned about how she knew the interiors of these top-secret facilities. And Agent Doty wasn't the only person Paul was involved with. Late in 1980, APRO Director Jim Lawrenson asked another UFO researcher to pay a visit to Paul. And who is that? His name was Bill Moore, and he had a rapidly rising reputation that would lead him to become one of the most prominent and influential UFO researchers of the 1980s. In 1979, he and Charles Berlitz had co-authored a 
book called The Philadelphia Experiment about a reported Navy experiment involving invisibility that went horribly wrong in 1943. And yes, we'll be talking about the Philadelphia Experiment in the future. Even more relevant to his reputation as a ufologist was the fact that in 1980, he and Berlitz co-authored the book The Roswell Incident, which was the first book on the subject, and it caused Roswell to come roaring back into public consciousness after being largely forgotten for decades. You can listen to episode 49 if you'd like to hear a summary of my present thought on Roswell, though I'm always doing more research. With famous books like The Philadelphia Experiment and The Roswell Incident under his belt, Bill Moore's star was on the rise, and he lived in Arizona, which is right next to New Mexico, so APRO director Jim Lawrenson asked him to head over to New Mexico and talk to Paul Benowitz and see what the merits of different parts of his investigation might have. And what did Bill Moore conclude when he talked to Paul? They uh, had quite a number of conversations over time, which would suggest that Bill was quite interested in what he had to say. Then, in the late summer of 1981, Bill came to Paul's business for a rather dramatic meeting in which he gave him a document. The document had been written almost a year before, and Bill had gotten it from his own sources in the Air Force. And it concerned Paul. The document is now known as the Aquarius document because it mentions something called Project Aquarius. Greg Bishop reports Bill Moore saying the following. I went to his office at Thunder Scientific and told Paul that we needed to talk somewhere where we couldn't be overheard, said Moore. He suggested that we go into one of his office supply closets. Following his covert operations training, but now using it to his own advantage, Moore picked up a radio, took it into the 5 by 8 foot room, plugged it in, and turned it up loud to foil any possible listening devices. He handed the Aquarius document to Benowitz and waited for him to read it. He started practically jumping up and down, saying that finally he had the proof that the Air Force was taking him seriously. Moore moved closer and, speaking inches from Benowitz's ear, said, Paul, you'd better be very careful with what you do with this. Use it for your own research, but otherwise just sit on it. So Bill wanted Paul to know about the Aquarius document that he had received, but he thought Paul should keep this fact to himself. Let's talk about the Aquarius document. Who wrote it and what did it say? The document came from the 7602 Air Intelligence Group in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. This was the branch of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations that handled UFO reports at the time. And the document concerned a series of photos and films that Paul himself had taken of the strange objects over Kirtland AFB. Specifically, it was an analysis of them. That meant that the local base had thought enough of Paul's photos to forward them to the national headquarters for analysis. The document concluded that the images Paul had taken had not been altered, so no double exposures or other after-the-fact photo trickery. And they did indeed contain objects that could not be explained, including saucer-like ones. The document also said that a Captain Grace of the 7602 Air Intelligence Group had been contacted, and he indicated that the USAF was no longer publicly active in UFO research, but did still have an interest in all UFO sightings over Air Force installations and test ranges. That was consistent with the fact that the Air Force had closed down Project Blue Book at the beginning of 1970, but you'd still obviously be interested in anything happening over one of your bases. 
Further, Captain Grace had indicated that there were several other government agencies led by NASA that were actively investigating legitimate sightings, but using covert means. NASA would then filter the results to the appropriate military departments. The document then said, The official U.S. government policy and results of Project Aquarius is still classified top secret, with no dissemination outside official intelligence channels and with restricted access to MJ-12. The case on Benowitz is being monitored by NASA, who request all future evidence be forwarded to them through the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. This is why Paul got so excited. His case was being monitored by NASA, which the Aquarius document said was in charge of the government's overall covert investigation of UFOs. And NASA wanted the Air Force Office of Special Investigations that is the AFOSI, to forward them all future evidence concerning what he was finding. That much was clear, but not everything in the document was equally clear. For example, it didn't explain what Project Aquarius was. It only said that its results were classified top secret and could only be distributed within intelligence channels. Even then, access was restricted to something called MJ-12. What was that? Nobody, including Paul and Bill, knew the significance of that at the time, but MJ-12, also known as Majestic-12, would play a major role in future ufology. Greg Bishop explains, Here, near the bottom of this wordy message in late 1980, was the very first time anyone had seen a reference to the idea of a suspected government group called MJ-12 that controlled UFO information. Of course, no one suspected at the time the colossal role that this idea would play in 1980s and 90s ufology, and it eventually spread beyond its confines to become a cultural mainstay. We'll definitely be talking about Majestic 12 in a future episode, but to do so here would take us away from our focus on Paul and his investigations. Suffice it to say that MJ-12 is reported to be a secret group of high officials and experts that the government first convened in the late 1940s to deal with the UFO problem. The Aquarius document may have been reassuring to Paul, but didn't it also have a frustrating aspect? Yeah, early in 1980, he had begun writing to his two senators in Washington, trying to alert them to the dangerous things he was finding out. At first, they seemed to take what he was saying seriously, but then they stopped doing that as if someone got to them. Then, in December of 1981, after he received the Aquarius document, Paul wrote President Reagan, but All he got back was a letter from a colonel in the Pentagon giving the standard reply that they sent everyone about UFOs, namely an explanation of the fact that Project Blue Book had been shut down and the Air Force was no longer investigating this. Greg Bishop notes, To Paul Benowitz, this was patently ridiculous. He was smack in the middle of what he saw as a very high-level investigation of an alien invasion, and the AFOSI was taking his reports for evaluation. Various AFOSI agents were keeping in touch with him and listening to his stories. But Paul shouldn't have been too surprised by this mixed attitude. I mean, the Aquarius document said the government wouldn't publicly investigate UFOs, but that it would do so covertly, with information being funneled up from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations to NASA, perhaps under the name Project Aquarius, which had restricted access. So you would expect to get the public, we don't do this anymore line if you contacted people who weren't in the know. 
but an open attitude from people who were in the know. Yet, Paul was impatient and didn't seem to want this process to play out. He was figuratively knocking on a bunch of doors, trying to get more prompt action, and he wasn't having success, which was putting strain on him. From Benowitz's point of view, the cognitive dissonance of apparent approval and assistance on one hand, and doors slammed in his face as well as impassioned letters going unanswered on the other, were starting to take their toll. And weird stuff was happening around him, and other people were seeing it too. Once, his friends, Bill Moore, the ufologist, and Special Agent Richard Doty, were over at his house at the same time when they saw something really strange. Moore's attention was drawn to something bright near the ceiling of the home lab. He was startled to see a pale orange or yellow ball, about the size of a softball, hovering in the corner. The glowing orb, which had a pale blue halo around it, wobbled ever so slightly, but otherwise stayed in place. Paul, what's that? Moore asked, pointing. Surprisingly nonchalant, Benowitz said, Oh, you see them too. I haven't been able to figure out what they are, but they keep showing up. The orb, which looked three-dimensional and self-illuminating, quickly winked out like someone turning off an incandescent light. It was more like it faded out very quickly, says Moore. It was transparent. You could see the corner where the wall met the ceiling behind it. So Paul's home was being invaded by floating glowing orbs like the ones we mentioned in episode 36 on Skinwalker Ranch. Fortunately, they weren't the blue panic orbs that can incinerate dogs. But they were seen by multiple people, including Paul's guests, Bill Moore and Richard Doty. And this wasn't the only strange thing he had seen. Paul had also seen strange things with Officer Gabe Valdez. Valdez was up in the northwestern part of New Mexico, near the Colorado border. What did he and Paul see? One of the things he saw were the results of ongoing cattle mutilation. Greg Bishop reports, Benowitz was racking up the visits to Dulcie, and his friend Gabe Valdez was still showing him areas where cattle were found almost weakly, mutilated and rotting in the pastures. Valdez also told Benowitz about almost nightly sightings of strange lights skirting the mountains above that small town. Everyone there had seen them at least once. Benowitz and Valdez took many nighttime trips in the Highway Patrol cruiser along bumpy back roads to try to find and follow these enigmatic lights. Valdez even showed him the local spook light, a faint bluish glow that hovered over an abandoned graveyard. And we'll be having future episodes on spook lights, including the famous Marfa lights and others. What was remarkable in this case was one of the steps that Officer Valdez took to try to eliminate natural explanations for what the local spook light might be. Valdez had the power shut off in Dulcie one night to see if the phenomenon was simply reflected light from somewhere in town. He discovered it wasn't, and then promptly caught hell from outraged residents who were watching a championship fight at the same time. Bill Moore recalls seeing this light with Valdez one night as well, and recalled that when they attempted to approach it, it simply went out. Paul also was a pilot, and so he took a private plane up to the Dulce area that Officer Valdez patrolled. He took lots of aerial photos, including, in particular, an area known as Archuleta Mesa, where many of the phenomena had been reported. Here's how Paul's friend, Special Agent Richard Doty, described how Paul became involved with the Archuleta Mesa area. Paul actually thought that these UFOs had to be coming from some other place. So Paul, on his own, went up to Archuleta Peak, which is up in northern New Mexico, around Dulce, New Mexico. 
and um, he did his own investigation, basically. Dulce and Archuleta Peak area had a superstition for many years, way, way before we were ever involved. There were strange lights and strange uh, stories about that area coming from the Indian tribe that lives up there. The local tribe, by the way, are the Hickorya Apaches, and Paul was convinced by what he saw in his aerial overflights that this is where the UFOs that were visiting Kirtland must be coming from. When Benowitz returned to Albuquerque, he told his Air Force contacts, Richard Doty, Tom Shea, and Ernest Edwards, about his trips out to Dulce and his suspicions that the alien base he had learned about in Myrna Hansen's hypnotic regressions was probably located there. So he had a plausible site for where the underground alien base was in the Dulce, New Mexico area around Mount Archuleta. With all of his overflights of Dulce, did he find anything of particular interest? He got pictures of what he thought was part of the alien base, things like a large dome and vents coming out of the ground where they shouldn't be in the Hickorya Apache Reservation. Then, in mid to late 1985, Benowitz was on another of his countless reconnaissance trips to Archuleta when he spotted something on one of the remote slopes. As he banked and descended for a better look, he thought he could see burned trees in what looked like a crashed aircraft. He brought the little monoplane around for another look and snapped a few pictures. When developed in his home darkroom, they revealed a sort of delta-winged craft broken into two main sections. This discovery obviously fascinated Paul and sparked him to even more activity. You'll recall that he had evidence that there was some kind of human-alien collusion going on and that this relationship had gone bad. Based on what he was able to find out, he concluded that the weird-looking downed aircraft was actually human-built. It was a human-built nuclear-powered aircraft, maybe based on alien tech, that we had built and flown near the alien base as a show of what we're capable of. But the aliens shot it down to teach us a lesson. And since it was nuclear-powered, he couldn't go out and approach its wreckage on foot for fear of radiation contamination. In his overflights, he used a scintillator, a device for detecting uranium deposits, and got excess radiation readings over the site. Eventually, someone cleared away the wreckage, and Paul was able to make a ground-level visit to the site. By then, the radiation he had detected was gone, but they did find broken trees and plants and a huge gouge in the soil. How did Paul think we needed to deal with the alien presence and the fact that they were shooting down human-built craft now that the relationship had soured? He drew up a plan describing what he thought needed to be done, and he named this Project Beta. Nobody is sure why he picked that name, as he never mentioned a Project Alpha, but maybe he had an idea for a Project Alpha and then scrapped it in favor of Project Beta. In any event, he drew up a multi-page memo and mailed it to President Ronald Reagan, New Mexico's two senators, uh, Senators Pete Domenici and Harrison Schmidt, who, by the way, was an astronaut, as well as APRO and various UFO investigators. In it, he described the course of his investigation and his assessment of the current situation. Among his more alarming findings were... A case history of an encounter victim in New Mexico which led to the communications link in discovery that apparently all encounter victims have deliberate alien implants along with obvious accompanying scars. The victim's implants were verified by x-ray and CAT scan. Five other scar cases were verified. The reason for the implant is multiple for both language or communication by thought. There is apparently no language barrier with thought. 
and also for complete, absolute control by the alien through program, by their beam or direct contact. If this has happened to the military, I need not elaborate as to the possible consequences. The victim's switch can be pulled at any time, and at the same time they are walking cameras and microphones if the alien chooses to listen in with the use of their beams. No classified area of endeavor in the U.S. is inviolate under these conditions. However, realize the scars, barely visible, can be seen. All are exactly located and all are accessible by X-ray. If a person states he or she has communicated by thought with an alien, he or she most likely has been implanted. They may also claim to be overly psychic and be able to prove this, again through the link transplant, he or she is given the information by the alien and does not realize. And this is reasonable. Even today, in 2021, we have rudimentary machine telepathy, as we've talked about in previous episodes, and it should only improve in the future. So, don't trust people who have been implanted as the aliens can spy through them and totally control them if they want. Concerning the aliens themselves, Paul estimated that there were at least 2,000 aliens on Earth, and likely more, and that more were on the way. They also apparently all have implants, kind of the way we all have smartphones, you know, today. They're just really useful. Very important was what he learned about their psychology from his communications link with them. It is important to note at the outset that the alien is devious, employs deception, and have no intent of any apparent peacemaking process, and obviously does not adhere to any prior arranged agreement. In truth, they tend to lie. However, their memory for lying is not long, and direct comparative computer printout analysis reveals this fact. Therefore, much drops through the cracks, so to speak, and from this comes the apparent truth. Most importantly, the alien will exhibit tendencies for bad logic, bad by Earth logic comparison, so they are not infallible. In point of fact, they appear to have many more frailties and weaknesses than the normal Homo sapien. Psychologically, at present, their morale is down, near disintegration. There is pronounced dissension in the ranks, even with the humanoids. Because of the aliens' small numbers, weaknesses, the fact they're not infallible, and that there's dissension and disagreement in the alien ranks, Paul thought that we have a real chance against them, and we need to strike quickly. I doubt there is an immediate or total cure, per se. However, they must be stopped and we have to get off dead center before we find time has run out. They are picking up and cutting, as the alien calls it, many people every night. Each implanted individual is apparently ready for the pull of their switch. Whether all implants are totally effective, I cannot predict, but conservatively, I would estimate at least 300,000 or more in the U.S., and at least 2 million, if not more, worldwide have been implanted. Weaponry is one of the keys, and in the alien's present state, we can prepare an effective offense. Paul then offered an analysis of the alien systems and countermeasures we could use against them. Among his recommendations was damming the river that served as the alien base's water supply, forcing them into an even worse situation and likely forcing them to abandon their bases in their vehicles. But he noted that we would need a weapon capable of penetrating their defense screens, and Paul believed he was in a position to provide one, having developed a prototype at his company using more than $200,000 of his own money. 
The weapon must penetrate their screen, and it must also penetrate the ground. I believe I have that weapon. Two small prototypes have been funded and constructed by my company. Tests conducted to date indicate that they work, and work rather well considering their small size. Because of this weapon's present status and proprietary nature, a basic patent is in process, the theory will not be explained here. However, the weapon appears to do two things at very low power. 1. The discs within its range begin to discharge when exposed to the weapon beam. To counteract, they must apply more power, and so doing consume more power. Again, conservation of energy laws strictly apply. This effect can be observed on the detection instruments as they back away in response to slow discharge. Discharge at low power is slow, but at high power in the final sophisticated weapon, the rate can be increased by many orders of magnitude. 2. Most importantly, this weapon can penetrate the screen, hull, alloy, everything. They cannot shield it in any way. Lastly, because of the implants, the weapon gets to them mentally. They lose judgment and indicate almost immediate confusion, particularly the humanoids. It is believed at this early stage, based on present testing, that the weapon when full-on and full-size will kill or bring down discs at substantial range. The alien weapons operate substantially the same as their discs, using a charge source and charge distribution. So in the same sense, it is indicated that this weapon design will pull their charge weapons down very rapidly. The range of my weapon exceeds that of their present weapons, and in its most sophisticated form, can be readily computer-controlled to allow extremely rapid tracking and lock-on, regardless of speed, along with electronic wobulation of the beam. It is a beam weapon, and even at this early stage of miniature prototype testing and development, it indicates eventual superiority to their weapons. Paul estimated that it would take around a year to get the weapon combat ready for use against the aliens, and he describes the phases of the attack he envisioned. We won't go through them here in detail as they're quite extensive. Paul really thought them through. But you can read the Project Beta document in the book by Greg Bishop that we'll have a link to. Summarizing, Paul explained, Some of us will be lost in the endeavor. That is obvious. However, done now, the advantage is gained along with new additional technology to prepare for the next stage. The key to overall success is they totally respect force. And with them, the most effective method is to stubbornly continue to pick and pull at the defense with no let-up. Faced with the total loss of a base that it has taken years to construct, it is believed that their mission will be grossly weakened and badly slowed. As Americans in this particular instance, we must realize that we cannot rely upon our inherent moral principles to provide the answer. Negotiation is out. This particular group can only be dealt with, no differently than one must deal with a mad dog. That method they understand. They have invaded our country and our air, and they are freely violating the personal and mental integrity of our people. Therefore, in eliminating this threat, most certainly we cannot be called the aggressor because we have literally been invaded. In final conclusion, A, they cannot under any circumstances be trusted. B, they are totally deceptive and death-oriented and have no respect for humans or human life. C, no negotiation, agreement, nor peaceful compromise can be settled upon in any way. D, no agreements signed by both parties will ever be adhered to nor recognized and respected by the alien 
though they might attempt to make us believe otherwise. E. Absolutely no quarter can be allowed under any circumstances. Once the offense is instigated, it cannot be abandoned. If it is, reciprocal reprisal will immediately result. They must be made to come down, destruct themselves, which is a standing order if the ship is failing, or to leave Earth immediately. No leeway of any kind can be allowed nor tolerated. So, that's what Paul recommended to President and Commander-in-Chief Ronald Reagan. An all-out attack to drive the aliens off Earth. Jimmy, where do we go from here? Next episode, we'll tell you the rest of the Paul Benowitz story. Were he and the Air Force able to covertly thwart the alien invasion back in the 1980s? Has it been covered up and hidden from the public all this time? What role did the elite Army fighters known as Delta Force play in what happened? And what was the terrible price that Paul Benowitz himself paid? Jimmy, as we wait for next week, what further resources can we offer to the listener to examine? Well, unless you want spoilers, don't check these out, but we'll have a link to Greg Bishop's, uh, don't check them out till next week, but Greg Bishop's book on Project Beta, Gabe Valdez's son's book on Dulce Base, documentary about Paul Benowitz, also web pages on Paul Benowitz, Dulce Base, Kirtland Air Force Base, the Albuquerque Historical Society's page on Kirtland AFB, and an article on the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO. Also, we'll have a link to some fan art that I've been meaning to share that's been sent in by fans of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Well, let's talk about some of that fan art first uh, as we discuss in our mysterious feedback. Our first feedback comes from Rachel M., who sends an email. She says, while listening to episode 99, Our Lady of Akita of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, to celebrate the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary back in September, I felt inspired to create this very mysterious fan art. My classmates in the lay master's program at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans appreciated this little painting so much that I made prints to share with them. You can imagine how much a bunch of theology grad students appreciate your critical thinking model. <laughs> That's extremely flattering, Rachel, and her fan art is really awesome. She did an acrylic painting on canvas that has really kind of sparkly quality, and I can understand why her friends would like it enough to want duplicates of it, to get prints of it, It's because it's really well done. She was very kind, and she sent me the original, and so I have it here in my home office, and in fact, if you watch me on Catholic Answers Live, you can actually see it over my left shoulder. I've put it on one of my bookcases next to the photo of my wife in her wedding dress. And so you can check it out there. But also, we'll have a link to a really nice image that Rachel sent of the picture along with some of the prints that she made for her friends. So you can check that out at JimmyAiken.com. Jimmy, I understand that we also had some other fan art from Josh C. on Facebook. Yeah, Josh C. did a did some image manipulation on some Pokemon images. Now, I have to confess, I'm a little old for when <laughs> Pokemon first came out. So I wasn't the target demographic. And I do know some about Pokemon. I, I understand the object of the game and I've watched some of the TV show and I uh, or the original TV show anyway, and I understand some of the characters. So what he's got here, and we'll also have this at JimmyAiken.com, is a sort of three, he's got three images. The first one says, some say Charmander is the best. 
and it's got a picture of the Charmander character. Some say it's Squirtle, and it's got a picture of the Squirtle character. And then he says, but deep down, we all know that Jimmy Aiken is the best, and he's got a picture of me. And (laughs) so that's that's very flattering. Very nice. Thank you both for sending that in. So the rest of our feedback will come from our recent episode on mediums and seances. And the first feedback comes from Flying Car 100 on YouTube, who wrote, I totally knew one of you was going to use the small medium at large joke. Yeah, I have to give all credit and or blame to Dom for that because he's the dad and I actually had not heard that joke before. That's Although a total I, dad I, joke. I, 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 will, I will take credit or blame for being able to immediately apply it to Leonora Piper. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sverker on YouTube writes, what do mediums or researchers of communication with the dead have to say about religious apparitions of, for example, God, Mary or the saints? Do they put them in a different category than seances and such? They do. Exactly how the categories work will depend on which researcher you're talking to and how they conceptualize these things. But it's recognized that, you know, there's a difference between a seance where you make efforts to contact the dead versus where a saint shows up in a vision without you asking. And they do use, or someone else, doesn't have to be a saint, and these are called, they they use the same term that we do for when someone shows up when you didn't ask. They call those apparitions. And one of the studies that was done, one of the major fields of study that was done at the very beginning of modern parapsychology was of, a, was of what are called crisis apparitions. Crisis apparitions are when, let's say, someone is in trouble or dying or has just died and they appear to you. Like maybe your father is dying and you don't know it, but your father appears to you in a dream or a vision as that's happening. And so because these tend to be reported when the person appearing is in a crisis, they're called crisis apparitions. And we'll definitely be talking about them in the future. Eben4 on YouTube writes, very enjoyable episode. Since consulting mediums is immoral and forbidden, would that also mean that study of mediums is immoral because it requires them to be consulted? Seems that way to me. Well, I think it's a little more complex than that because there can be testing and study of forbidden things that's done in a moral way. For example, in the Old Testament, we have the famous contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And the purpose is to show who is God. Is it Yahweh that Elijah worships or is it Baal that his his prophets worship? And so what they do is they have a sort of dueling sacrifice competition. The idea is we're going to we're going to slaughter the animals and whichever God answers by consuming the sacrifice with fire, that's the one who's really God. And so the prophets of Baal kill their animals, and then they invoke Baal to please answer by fire and consume the sacrifice, and nothing happens. And they start whipping themselves up and getting into a frenzy and cutting themselves and stuff like that to really reach out. Meanwhile, Elijah is mocking them. 
He's one saying of my favorite like, lines. <laughs> yeah, he's saying, and this will get translated a little bit differently in different Bibles. You know, maybe your God is on a trip, or maybe your God is asleep, or something like that. Why don't you get even louder? Actually, one of the things Elijah says would be somewhat literally translated, maybe your God is in the bathroom. <laughs> uh, it's not exactly taking a trip. And so this is presented as, a, and then after the prophets of Baal have worn themselves out, Elijah kills his ox and has it has water dumped all over it. So it's wet, going to make it even harder. And then, whom fire comes down from heaven and and it's immediately obvious who the real God is. So this is an instance where the prophets of Baal are engaged in an immoral activity. They're worshiping a false god, but it's legitimate for Elijah to have this contest with them to show who the true God is. So we're testing a false belief system by letting the people who have the false belief system do their thing, which they were going to do anyway. They're going to sacrifice to Baal at some point. It just happened to be today. Well, the same thing you can argue could apply to mediums. They're going to do their medium thing. That doesn't mean we can't study this practice. And given that parapsychologists actually do study it, well, whether the studies were ethically done or not, the information's here now, and we may as well use it and know about it. So I think it's legitimate to report on the results of what parapsychologists have found about mediums, even if I personally, you know, would feel squeamish morally about participating in such studies, even though I recognize that there are underlying principles where it might be able to be done ethically. Domian sent an email that said, about 10 years ago, before my wife converted to Catholicism, she visited a medium, and it was a rather surreal experience. The medium was able to tell strange things about her that she wasn't supposed to know, including that my wife was carrying a ring in her pocket, which had belonged to the deceased family member she went to inquire about. That in itself made me suspect that there was no simple earthly trickery going on, but I was puzzled when she told me the so-called spirit of her great-aunt had said some very strange things about the afterlife. Most importantly, there is no God. We both knew right away at the time that it made no sense for there to be an afterlife, complete with rewards for the just, but no God. Apparently, the medium herself had been a Christian in the past, but had turned away from the faith due to the things she'd been hearing from the souls of the deceased. All of this makes the demon theory seem quite plausible to me now. If it was a demon, the good news is that my wife didn't fall for its trickery. And as I acknowledged in our summary on the previous episode, I think the answer to what causes mediumship is all of the above. I think a lot of the time it's trickery. Other times it could be mental illness. Other times it could be genuine communication with the dead and it can be communications with demons. So I think all of those are live options for explaining things. All, I would note that t that the denial of the existence of God is something that's unique to this medium. In 19th century spiritualism and the spiritualist churches that grew out of that, they do tend to believe in God. And so you'll have dead spirits reporting about, you know, yeah, God exists. So that's not a typical thing you hear. It is something, obviously, that a demon would be interested in saying. But there's also it also would be something that a, a disgruntled former Christian medium might project from her own consciousness. So I could see a natural explanation for that. And I even wonder about the ring in the pocket knowledge, because I can see how a, a trickster who's doing a cold reading 
on your wife might be able to get that information. Now, if your wife showed up and the medium simply without any questioning simply says, you've got the ring of your departed loved one in your pocket, don't you? Okay, that I would say is paranormal, or at least much harder to explain naturally. But the way mediums often do cold readings on the sitters is by asking questions. And so if you've shown up to ask about a loved one, they might say, do you still have something of your loved ones? And then it's and if you would say yes, they might think they might say, is it perhaps a ring? Because rings are one of the things people often save from their loved ones because they're fair. They're not indestructible, but they're fairly enduring and they're very personal. I mean, I still have my wife's engagement and wedding ring almost 30 years later. And so then if you if your wife says, yeah, it's a ring. Do you happen to have it with you? Why, yes, I do. Could it? And at that point, since you've got a woman here, it's going to be in one of two places, either her purse or her pocket. Is it perhaps in your pocket? Well, okay. just by that series of cold reading questions, you can get to the point of you have your loved one's ring in your pocket. But if you're not thinking about, am I being cold read? It could sound it could seem more supernatural than it actually is. Jason Thayer writes on Facebook, when you have a previously on segment, I'm always reminded of X-Men, Avatar The Last End, Airbender, and Gargoyles showing relevant scenes from previous episodes before the new one starts. Yeah, which shows you're going to associate that previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World with will depend on sort of which era of television you grew up with or have been most exposed to. For me, it's the different Star Trek series and the X-Files. That That's right. what I think of. Same here. Crystal writes on Facebook, I am a psychology professor, and I started using some examples from your podcast to help illustrate research methods and critical thinking skills. I find that a little paranormal parapsychology helps make it less dry. Thanks for the great work, and I hope to be a patron soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Crystal. And yes, I agree. The paranormal is fascinating. It makes it less dry, and it's a good subject to work over with critical thinking skills. And I'm glad that the uh, I'm glad you're finding some useful illustrations for your students. By the way, let let them know about the podcast so they can listen too. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's all of our feedback for this week. Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines? Well, since we just did some feedback on our Mediums episode, here are some headlines related to the dead. There's been a scientific study of which people tend to hear the voices of the dead and what separates them, what what characteristics do they tend to have that are different than the ordinary population. And they talk about a number of them. One of them turns out to be absorption, which is the ability to immerse yourself in a mental task and sort of tune out all the distractions around you. And people who have that are more likely to report hearing the voices of the dead than people who have lower absorption levels. A second theory connected with the dead is a new Dyatlov Pass theory. Now, we talked about Dyatlov Pass Oh, a long time ago. For those who may not be aware, it's a famous incident that occurred in Russia in 1959 where a bunch of expert hikers died under really mysterious circumstances. And there have been all kinds of theories about it. And there's a new theory out. I mean, a new sort of twist on an existing theory that was based on some snow modeling 
that they did on computers based on the way snow was modeled in the movie Frozen. And they said, hey, we could apply this to Dyatlov Pass and maybe figure something out about it. So that's been in the news recently. So we'll have a link to that in case you haven't seen it. Also, if you want to join the dead earlier than you should, a technique you could try but don't is injecting magic mushrooms into your blood veins. There is this guy who had some mental issues and he was off his meds and he decided to try self-medicating. So he got some magic mushrooms and he boiled them to make magic mushroom tea and he then injected it into his blood veins. Now, it started growing in his blood veins. And you would think this would be a like interesting, quirky story like the guy who has, which we've mentioned before, the guy who has the biological condition so that his intestines ferment stuff and he effectively brews beer in his gut. You know, that's so he has kind of like a buzz going. Maybe you would think maybe this is going to be this guy just has the stuff in his blood and now he's going to have a little psychedelic thing going all the time. No, think fungal infection. This guy, instead of getting a perpetual high, got landed in the hospital for more than three weeks, and he had to take all kinds of antifungal things to kill off the fungus that was growing, the magic mushroom species that was growing in his blood. So uh, don't want to do that one. Nope. Don't inject yourself with things, folks. (laughs) All right. So let's hear your theories. We want your mysterious feedback on this episode. What are your theories about Paul Benowitz in Project Beta? Let us know what you think of the story so far and what your theories are of what's going on in this story. Uh, we, we'd love to hear from you, but uh, no spoilers. Like we, we, want, we, we don't want yeah. you to, to read ahead, shall we say, but yeah. just based on if, what you if, heard. If you know the Paul Benowitz story, don't spoil it for other people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you can do that by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next episode, we'll tell you the end of the Paul Benowitz story and go into analysis mode to figure out what really happened. Were they able to stop the alien invasion that he feared? Has it been covered up all this time? Why did the Air Force call in the Army's Delta Force? And what was the huge price that Paul Benowitz personally paid? All right. So, folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show, not just this one, but all the shows. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Quest.